So we're in this message series entitled Decide or Default. It is based on this simple idea. Either you will decide to develop your soul or the decision will default to someone else. And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to your money. Have you noticed everybody has an agenda for your money? I mean, everybody. Everybody has an idea of how you ought to spend your money, how you ought to invest your money, what you really need to buy with your money. And I think that's why we're defensive about our money. It's like because we sense this pressure from everyone else and their agenda. And maybe that's why when the preacher, like me, gets up and he starts to talk about money, you get really freaked out and say, one more guy who's got an agenda for my money, why doesn't everybody just leave me alone? So let me start today's message by offering you an observation, correcting a lie, and then addressing a fear. First of all, the observation. Most people want to be generous people. Don't you think so? I mean, most people really do want to be generous. And if you don't believe this, follow a pair of grandparents into a toy store and you will see that they want to be generous. That they want to be able to give to people that they love. Nobody sets out in life to become the stingy person, Mr. Scrooge, from A Christmas Tale, nobody wants to be that guy. Now, here's the lie that we need to correct, and that is, it's your money. Most of us believe this lie. It's my money, I earned it, I worked for it. And that's because we frame this up incorrectly in our heads. Most of us think of our lives, especially when it comes to finances, as a pot, right? This is my pot. I get to put my money in my pot and I get to keep it. Kind of like, have y'all ever had somebody make fudge? And then it's like, who gets the pot to lick it? Or is that just at my house? See, see, I think that's the way we think about money. This is mine, I'm gonna guard it, I'm gonna keep it. But I think that's thinking about it the wrong way. Because the truth is, money is not static, not in your life and not in mine. Instead, when it comes to your money and your life, it's more like a pipe. There's money that goes in, what you earn, what you get from Social Security, what you get as an allowance, and there's money that goes out. What you gotta pay for food, shelter, transportation, whatever you've got to wear in terms of clothes, whatever you spend at Walmart, money in, money out. Your financial life is like a pipe. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but I know some people, they've got a lot of money. They seem to have more of a pot. Now, let me, let me tell you what they've done. They have cut the flow at the bottom end of the pipe. So they have some pressure in the pipe. They've got some margin in the pipe, and they're just holding on to it. But let me tell you something about every one of those people, and let me tell you something that's going to be true for you as well. No matter how much you have coming in, no matter how much you're holding on to in the pipe, one day... You're going to die. Isn't this a happy thought? And when you die, what happens to the bottom of the pipe? Boom, it opens. And that money goes somewhere. People have wills. If you don't have a will, probably will go to your spouse, probably will go to your kids. If you're the last surviving parent and everything goes to the kids, let me tell you something you need to know. Within 18 months, your kids will spend every bit of it. That's what studies show. So if you're holding on to your money and thinking, I just want my kids to have a financial cushion for 18 months, they will. Now here's the truth. 
a lot of us can control the inflow. In other words, we can, we can get a better job, we can work harder. But you do have some control, especially about where the money flows. You can direct the pipe. You can decide to drive an older car and buy a bigger house. You can decide to buy a, a newer car and live in a smaller house. You can decide to live in a trailer and have a $50,000 bass boat, right? You get to control where the outflow goes to some degree. I mean, there's some things you can't control, right? I mean, if you don't pay your taxes, the government will find you. If you don't pay your bills, the bill collectors will find you. But, but you've got some discretion. Now, here is the fear I want to address. The fear that most people have is I don't have or I won't have enough. I either don't have enough, I don't have enough for the lifestyle I want, I don't have enough to retire, or I won't have enough, I won't have enough to send the kids to college, I won't have enough to be able to, to achieve my dreams and hopes. And it's this fear that keeps us from being generous people. We're afraid we won't have enough. So as we talk about generosity today, this simple story that you've already heard teaches us four fundamental truths. So let's unpack this a little bit, give you a little bit of background. Jesus has been going through this verbal battle with the religious leaders of his day. They have been uh, attacking him on all fronts. He's been responding. Now he's tired, and he goes to the part of the temple called the court of Israeli women. And in that court, there would have been 13 big chests. And on top of every chest, there would have been like a trumpet bell that would have flowed down into the chest, and people would put money into that trumpet bell. All money was coined. They had no paper money, and it would go down in there. What we don't appreciate is that uh, Jerusalem was a religious tourism center. People would come from all over the world to worship in Jerusalem, which tells us that most of the people who made the trip were wealthy. They could afford to leave their jobs for a period of time to make the trip. And when they came, they would usually bring an offering, sometimes an offering of thanks, sometimes an offering to fulfill a vow, and they would put it in one of these 13 boxes, and the boxes went to different causes. Some of the boxes, the money in those paid for the gold on the mercy seat. Some of them were temple dues. Some of them were to pay for the wood underneath the altar. So there was all kinds of different designations they could make with their money. So Jesus goes and he sits down opposite these 13 boxes, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 41. We are told that Jesus sat down in the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. Now, here's the first truth we need to pay attention to. Jesus watches what you do with your money. And you might say, well, I don't want Jesus to watch what I do with my money. Take it up with Jesus. Right? I mean, he does. He pays attention. Why does he pay attention to what you do with your money? Don't you remember he said in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, wherever a man's treasure is, that's where his heart is? What you do with your money is an indicator of your soul's health. And so, Jesus wants to know, if the income is coming in, what are you putting the outflow toward? What are you spending it on? 
How much are you allocating to each issue in your life? Does this change how you spend if you understand Jesus is watching your money? I, I think it does require some spiritual maturity to actually think through. Because some of you would say, well, I'm going to try to hide this from Jesus, what I do with my money. Except it will come out for you something like, ain't nobody's business what I do with my money. Remember, this goes back to that lie we had to correct that it's your money. Because it's not your money. It's just flowing through your life. Maybe you struggle with me, like me, and you feel over-responsible for everything in the world. And so when you think about, okay... Jesus is watching what I'm doing with my money. That means I can never have fun again, right? Because Jesus wants me to be miserable. Jesus does not want you to be miserable. So just because Jesus is watching what you do with your money doesn't mean that he's going to say to you, I want you to suffer. No, 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 no. Here's what I think is really going to happen. If you were to, uh, this week, ask Jesus for input on how you allocated your money, what do you think he would say? If you ask Jesus for input this week on how you allocate your money, what would he say? I, I think you can sum it up in two words. The first thing he would tell you is be wise. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because when it comes to money, there's part of every one of us that still wants to be childish. We don't want to be responsible. I actually know people, you probably do too, they don't pay any attention to how much money they have in the bank. As long as their debit card works, they figure they're okay. As long as a credit card transaction goes through, they figure, I've got this. Now, some of us can't fathom what that looks like. But Jesus would say, I want you to be wise. And so, in being wise... There would be four basic truths that Jesus would want you to know. These, you're not going to be surprised by these. These would be standard. You'd, you can hear these on Fox Business or MSNBC, and here they are. Number one, avoid debt. Yeah, don't, don't burden yourself with debt. Just because the bank will let you borrow that much money doesn't mean it's a good idea. The second thing Jesus would tell you is spend less than you make. Ding! The average American household spends about 108 to 113% of their annual income each year. Anybody see something wrong with that picture? Here's the third thing Jesus would tell you is save. Save money. It's a good idea to have some money saved. And here's the fourth one. Be generous. Be generous. Now, there's a lot of room in there. There's a lot of room in there for what you can do for how you can enjoy money. Um, I've already told you, I struggle sometimes with this. And so when it comes to things like vacations for a lot of years, I would say, no, we can't go on vacation. We can't afford it. Unless we got one of those deals, you may remember this from several years ago, where you could go to the beach, and as long as you sat through some timeshare pitch, you got you know, a check. One time we figured it out, how to go to the beach, got the check for the timeshare, we went out for pizza. They were late. They gave us our meal free. We made money staying two days at Myrtle Beach. But you know, then I realized Jesus went on vacation. He didn't call it that. But we're told he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon to get away from the crowds. Sometimes you need to get away. So be wise about how you allocate your money. 
So here's the second truth. It's also found in this first um, section, this first verse. And that is Jesus is not impressed with how much you have or how much you give. Doesn't impress him. Jesus does not watch these rich people coming by, putting a lot of money in the temple treasury, and he does not say to he does not say to his disciples, "Hey, come over here. You wouldn't believe how much that guy just put in." Jesus is not impressed. Why? Jesus doesn't play the comparison game. Now, advertising essentially is inviting you to play the comparison game. Compare what you have to what somebody else has. And advertisers know if they can make you feel fearful, you are more likely to buy their product. And it's interesting how we play that comparison game. Gina and I actually did take a few days off this week. We went to Isle of Palms, and uh, we, we found a vacation uh, by owner kind of thing, a Verbo, and stayed uh, like four nights. It was really great. But we took our golf cart, and we rode around Isle of Palms. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen the houses on the beach? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, just, I mean, these are huge houses, and they're, you're 40 feet high, and I'm just thinking, this is incredible. What do these people do for a living to afford this kind of house? And then I realized some of these are just vacation homes. These people have another house. And I can't think, of, how do they make this much money? Where do they go to church? Would they like to tithe to the pastor retirement fund at Alice Drive Baptist Church? Now, here's the interesting thing. I've got a house. I've got a pretty nice house. It's got a roof, four walls, windows, even has air conditioning. In fact, in my house, we have indoor plumbing. It's a good thing. And we have a dishwasher, washer, and a dryer. We have three TVs for two people. We have four bedrooms for two people and a dog and for the kids and the grandchildren when they come home. Okay, you know, so we, we even have Wi-Fi at my house. Two-thirds of the world would look at my house and covet. It's all about comparison. It's all about comparison. This is why God actually gave us a commandment about this. You remember the last commandment, thou shalt not covet? And you always come, what is covet? Well, covet is looking at what somebody else has and says, if I had that, I'd be happy. How many of us do that? And we do it without even thinking. And so I want you to know Jesus is not terribly impressed with what you have or even with how much you give. And this really leads me to the second observation I have in this part. These rich people, there's no trust in their giving. I mean, they're heaping coins into these treasury boxes. Is there any sacrifice? No indication of it. Now, a couple of things that's interesting. The word give in Greek actually means throw. You can get the picture, can't you? They're throwing the coins into these trumpet things. And if you translate this phrase, because many people gave great amounts, what it really says is many muchers threw much. I just love that phrase in Greek. Don't you? Yeah, you can throw a lot at it. It doesn't mean you're impressing Jesus. What would it look like if some of these rich people had actually trusted God? How much would they have given? 
there actually was one rich guy in the Gospels who met Jesus and trusted him with his money. Guy's name is Zacchaeus. You grew up in church, you remember his song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You remember that song? Okay, good. Um, Zacchaeus meets Jesus, and Jesus says, come down from the tree. I'm going to your house today. And we forget what Zacchaeus does. In Luke 19, we're told that Zacchaeus comes down, and he stands up before the Lord, and he says, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Every time I read that story, I have the same question. How much will he have left? I mean, you give away half your money to the poor, you think Zacchaeus is going to feel it? And if you've cheated anybody, boy, that's kind of open season. Can you imagine all the people coming up to Zacchaeus going, you cheated me. Fork it over. I, I think this is going on and on and on in Zacchaeus' life. But Zacchaeus decided he would trust Jesus with everything. Is there trust in your giving? That's kind of an uncomfortable question, isn't it? Is there trust in your giving? You trust that God can take care of you. Now the widow comes into the story, and we're told in verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. How did Jesus know she was poor? Probably by the way she dressed. How did Jesus know that she was a widow? Probably by the way she dressed. Then, as now, you could tell a lot about people by the way they dressed. And she puts in a few small coins, probably the equivalent of about 50 cents. It's not very much. And Jesus sees this, and I want you to notice his reaction in verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more to the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, this just, I want, I want to know some answers to some questions that the Bible doesn't give me. I want to know, first of all, why is she there? Why has she come to the temple on this day? I mean, she didn't have to be there. And what has motivated her to give? Was she really thankful for something that God had done? Had she made a vow to God and said, God, if you will heal one of my children or one of my grandchildren, I will give you everything I have? I mean, I don't know, but I wonder, don't you? And then, because food's a big issue for me, I wonder how she's going to pay, pay for her next meal, right? Where's she going to get her next loaf of bread? I mean, I, I wonder why she didn't say, you know, if I just reach down in one of these boxes, nobody will miss it. I wonder about the courage it took for her while they've got all these muchers giving much, you know, they're throwing the coins in and she just comes in and can you just hear the difference in the sound? You know, all the sound of all this money shaking into the box and then her two few little coins. Now, I don't know the answers to those questions. I do know the answer to one poor widow's reason she gave. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, and I've told this story before, and if you've heard me tell it before, 
I just, it's my favorite story, so I'm going to tell it again. Uh, when I was a pastor in rural Kentucky, there was this widow in our church named Mrs. Horn. And Mrs. Horn, um, she had never worked outside of the home. She had 10 kids, so she worked in the home a lot. And she, her husband was a barber. They had this small farm. He had died, and she lived in this big old farmhouse that was kind of run down. And every Monday morning, I taught a ladies' Bible study, and I would pick her up for ladies' Bible study. I didn't figure anybody would talk too much about that. It wasn't that scandalous because I was 27. She was 87. I didn't think anybody would think anything was going on. Okay. So I, I, I went and picked her up one day, and at this time, our church was trying to buy new hymnals. Now, let me explain to everybody under 40. There used to be these books called hymnals. And this, they had songs printed in them, and we didn't have screens and words. We used hymnals. We used books. So we were trying to buy a new set of books, a new set of hymnals. And we pull into the church parking lot, and Miss Horn says, before we go in, I got something to give you. Okay. And she hands me a dirty handkerchief. And she says, I want this to go for the new hymnals. Well, that's awful nice. And I opened it up, and there was a $100 bill and a $10 bill. I said, Miss Horn, that's a lot of money. And I knew that was a lot of money for her. She was just living on her husband's survivor benefit of Social Security. That was all the money she had. And she said, well, it's something I want to do. I said, well, you don't have to do that. She says, I know. But I got a Medicare reimbursement check, and I wanted to tithe on that. I said, no, 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 Miss Horn, you don't tithe on reimbursement checks. You know, you, you, you tithe on income. That's not income. Never argue with an 87-year-old woman who's got hair coming out of her chin. That's just not a good thing. She looked at me and she said, I know I don't have to give this. I want to give it. She had a generous heart. She was grateful for everything that God had done for her. I don't know that's why she gave. Now, Jesus calls his disciples over to him and he points out this widow, probably as she's walking away. And he says, look, look at this widow. And here's the third truth I want you to get. Jesus is impressed by amazing trust not amazing amounts. He's impressed by amazing trust. Over and over we see this in the Gospels, that there are people that Jesus calls out and he says, this person has great faith. Most of the time, it are, it are, these people are unlikely people. They're not the religious elites who are doing their duty. Jesus knows that this woman has to trust God to take care of her. This woman has to trust her heavenly father. And I think what she has learned is simply this, that the God who's taken care of her in the past is going to take care of her in the future. Now just think with me about that. What's God ever done for you? What has he ever brought you through? What gift has he given you? Did you think you were going to have to spend your life alone and then you found that somebody special? Did you think that 
some sin really just disqualified you and then you found out God really loved you? Did you get a promotion you didn't deserve? Did you ever get a check you didn't deserve? What's God ever done for you? You know, if God took care of you in the past, what do you think he'll do in the future? And Jesus tells the disciples something very important. He says, this poor widow has put in more into, put more into the treasury than all the others. And this is the fourth and final truth, and it's so important. The size of the sacrifice shows the size of trust. The size of the sacrifice shows the sign of size of trust. This poor widow trusted. Do you? So what does your generosity show about your trust? What does the size of your generosity show about your trust in your heavenly father? Now, I know some of you at this point are just going, oh, please, can we quit talking about money? Hang on, five more minutes. You're watching online, maybe you're not even a believer. Thanks for sticking with us this long. Here's what I want you to know. This matters for you, even if you're not a believer, even if you're not sure there's a God. Why? Study after study shows this simple reality. Mentally healthy people are generous people. The best way to combat depression and anxiety is to be generous. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, this is even more important. Because you're saying, I trust Jesus to save my soul. I trust Jesus to guide and direct my life. Therefore, I'm going to trust Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. So, of course, I'm going to trust him with how my money flows. Do you trust him a lot or a little? When we were building this building, uh, we got a very generous gift of over a million dollars. Boy, I remember taking that check into the ladies who count the money and going, look. But that day I asked him, I said, I want you to find the smallest amount that we got that Sunday. And they dug in the stack of envelopes and they pulled out an envelope. Obviously a child had written on it. And it was a dollar. Now which gift do you think showed the most trust? And here's the answer, we don't know. But God knows. It's the size of the sacrifice that shows the size of your trust. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I can talk about this, but you're not going to believe it till you do it. You're not going to believe this works. You're not going to believe that there's something that's going to help you in giving until you actually do it. So this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to pray a prayer, and I want you to pray until you get an answer. Uh, and I want you, the prayer's in the form of a question. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, if I have amazing trust in you this week, I'm not asking you to trust God for two weeks, just this week, what would generosity look like for me? If I had amazing trust in you, what would generosity look like for me? Let me tell you some things I think it might mean. Um, I think, first of all, God might say to some of you, I'm really glad you asked that. 
I want you to trust me to deal in reality. So let's get financially literate. There's tons and tons of good financial literacy tools out there. We use um, uh, Financial Peace University. Uh, whatever, just get financially literate. I think Jesus would say to some of you, I want you to actually organize your finances. I think Jesus would say to some of you, I want you to stop being an impulse giver. Let me tell you what an impulse giver does. An impulse giver waits till they feel like giving. I don't know about you, but there's some Sundays I don't feel like giving. But then again, there's some Sundays I get up, I don't feel like brushing my teeth. I don't feel like taking a shower. Aren't you glad I took my shower? You won't know if I brush my teeth unless you come to the next step room. Okay, sorry, I'm here all week. Um, I want to encourage you to think about moving from being an impulse giver to being a percentage giver. Let me tell you why. I think if you really have amazing trust in God, you will learn the discipline of giving, not when you feel like it, but giving as a regular part of life. Generosity is like a muscle. It builds strength the more generous you are. And, and this becomes not a have to, but a want to. What would happen if you grew your trust by growing your generosity? Because here's what I know is going to be true for you. That there's going to come a time where you are going to need to have radical trust in God. You're going to walk into a doctor's office, and he's going to tell you something, and you are going to go, God, i got to have a miracle. There's going to come a time when you're going to be in a relationship crisis, and you're going to be praying and say, God, only you can fix this. There's going to come a time when you're going to have a career crisis and you're going to God, you've got to intervene. I, I don't know what it is, but I know this. There's going to come a moment you're going to turn to God and say, I've really got to trust you with this. Doesn't it make sense to build your trust muscle now by being generous? So I've tried to think about generous people I have known, and, and I've thought about a lot of different people. And then I thought about my stepfather. Now, my stepfather was not a demonstrative guy at all. He uh, was a great guy, World War II vet, uh, had a, a, a good career with a, a, a company, and then he, uh, after he married my mother, moved to the ranch, got back into farming. And, but Lawrence was not a, a verbally demonstrative guy. I remember he told me once that he loved me when I was eight, and he never told me again. I, I think he just assumed that if it changed, he'd let me know. You know? And he was not the kind of guy who, boy, he got called on to pray one time in church. In rural church, you may not know this, in rural churches, oftentimes the preacher would just look out, and when I remember one Sunday, he said, Brother Lawrence Prescott, would you close us in prayer? I'd never heard my father pray in public. And he white-knuckled the pew in front of him, and he prayed something about bless this food. I'm not sure what it was. But we got through the end of the prayer, and he went to the preacher right and said, don't you ever call on me to pray again. <laughs> but Lawrence was one of the most generous people I ever knew. He was real quiet about it. If somebody in the church needed new clothes, he, he made sure they got new clothes. If the preacher needed a new car, Lawrence would raise the money for it. He was just that kind of guy. But I never thought about how much he actually trusted God. See, because really by the time I was in my late teen years and my early adult years, uh, they had moved back to the ranch and they lived on 
seven checks a year. Now, if you grew up on a farm, you understand this, right? You don't get paid bi-weekly. And so they got paid four times a year for oranges, and they got paid three times a year for cattle. Granted, they were big checks, but they had to stretch over 12 months. And yet every Sunday, I remember Lawrence going into the office, sitting down and writing out a check for $300. Now, keep in mind, this is like 1979, 1980, when $300 would be probably close to something like $2,000 today. He did that every week. And I, I just thought, that takes a lot of faith. He was tithing on money he didn't have. He didn't know if we would make money that year or lose money that year. But he was trusting. He was trusting that God would take care of him, that God would take care of us. I wonder what would happen in your life if you just simply were assured that God would take care of you, what would it do to your generosity? What would it do to your life? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking care of us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for blessing us and and I pray that our trust for you would grow. And as it grows, our generosity would grow. And Father, I know, you know, when we talk about money, I don't know how you use this message, but I do pray for people who may not know Jesus and they, they just realize that you're worthy of being trusted. So help them, Father, to trust you today as Savior and Lord. Now, others of us, Father, we, we need to make a different step and we really need to put our faith in you and trust you that you'll take care of us. So show us how to be generous just as you are generous to us. I ask all of this in the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus that you gave for us. Amen.